Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week we look back on the inaugural CPAC Australia conference as a possible turning point for the conservative movement in Australia, look at some of the latest ideas from climate alarmists and reflect on Comcare v Banerjee, a very important free speech case in the High Court. As always, we close with our books and culture segment. Today, there's a fair bit of Liberal Party stuff. We've got Nikki Savas' new book on how Malcolm Turnbull was brought down and John Ruddick's book, Make the Liberal Party Great Again. But we also have the dark comedy from HBO called Barry, which is a star vehicle for comedian Bill Hader, and close with Anne Henderson's book on Patrick Glynn. I'm Scott Hargraves, joined today by my colleagues from the IPA, Director of Policy, Gideon Rosner. G'day, Scott. Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland. Hi, Scott. And finally, our adjunct fellow, all-round adornment to the IPA, Dr Richard Alsop. Always a pleasure to be here, Scott. Great to have you back, mate. Avid listeners will note that today we are burglars. Dr Berg is travelling in a country with rubbish Wi-Fi and cannot be with us, but he will be back next week. So apologies for that. Uh, That means we'll go actually go a week without an obligatory blockchain moment. Don't forget that this podcast is brought to you by the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a supporter, please go to ipa.org.au and see how you can join or donate. So... We did have the uh, big conference uh, most recently on the weekend, the Conservative Political Action Conference, which is an American invention, uh, had its Australian incarnation, and it was uh, hugely successful in in crowd terms, and founder Andrew Cooper is very, very pleased with it. The IPA was a sponsor of the conference. Um, It was helped along just a little, we'll talk about, by Senator Christina Keneally, Um, but Richard Alsop, what does this uh, conference signify, do you think? Well, I think it signifies that there's an enormous um, residue of people who are really interested in um, standing up for political ideas. And we've heard a lot in recent months about the idea of um, shy Tories. And I think this conference is a signal that people do want to get out there, discuss ideas, stand up for what they believe in, and not just left. Um, the left freely dominate debate in Australia, um, you know, un- unchallenged. Um, I thought it was fascinating. It was also on the same weekend, the, you know, there was the Samuel Griffiths Society conference on the same weekend. So it was surely the, the first time uh, in Australia that we've had two conferences of that sort on the same weekend and both um, very well attended, very successful um, conferences. So I think that just shows the depth of... Um, interest there is in, in conservative and liberal ideas um, and I so and I think it's something really I think it is quite significant and I think um, that's what we're seeing in recent years this um, and I think it's particularly happened even even since the, the election that a number of people who just assumed that the world was heading in a and Australia in particular in a leftward direction um, suddenly realized that that's not the case that there are lots of people who do think like them out in the community and want to now get involved. And I think one of the striking things is how many young people there are now who want, who have an interest in these things. And often, being young people, they're still formulating exactly where they stand on the political spectrum, whether they're um, conservative, 
classical liberal, libertarian, um, and that's one of the great values of these sorts of conferences. It enables also young people to hear different perspectives and work out exactly where they stand and how they're going to pursue their uh, political ideas um, going forward. And I think, you know, obviously a country like the US, there's always been, it's a, such a large country that there's always been um, these, you know, you could always find a home there with whatever you stand on the political spectrum because it's large enough to have all sort of types of opinion represented. But I think it's terrific now in Australia that there are more and more opportunities being provided for people uh, to, f to be able to go somewhere where the, with like-minded people and, and discuss ideas, not always agreeing on every point, but at least um, sharing a broad philosophical underpinning uh, where they'll be welcome and I ideas can be prosecuted and then the sort of the fight can be taken out in the broader public arena to to the left and not let some of the more stupid ideas of the left go completely <laughs> unchallenged out in the public arena. I think what's really interesting about CPAC, uh, you know, and, and CPAC isn't the only mm. big conservative or libertarian or liberal mm. conference that Australia has seen. We've had the Freedman Conference mm. uh, put on by Tim Andrews, which was absolutely excellent. As you mentioned, there was a Samuel Griffith mm. Society conference. What strikes me about all these, these conferences and, and, and festivals of ideas really is that they have taken place out and superseded the framework of major political mm. parties and and the vibrancy we're seeing at places like unfortunately i didn't make it to cpac i was going to bomb into the dinner but because of christina Keneally's wonderful intervention it sold out so mm. maybe next year uh but you know when you look at the vibrancy of something like friedman for example or cpac uh it's just not there in the major parties, uh, you know, and I say this as somebody who's been a Liberal Party member for over half my life, and it, uh, you know, David Lionhelm wrote reasonably recently in Penthouse that uh, young people in particular are turning away from the blandness of party politics mm. and looking for more exciting alternatives mm. on the extreme end being provocateurs and mm. performance pieces like uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, but also people like, you know, Jordan Peterson, mm. who we always talk about, mm. Ben Shapiro. Um, and I remember in particular, and this is the last example I'll leave everybody with, I went to see Nigel Farage in, when he was in Sydney. And I have never seen so many centre-right people mm. in one room in all my life. There would have been about 300 people there, packed. There were MAGA hats, there were uh, old people, young people, an even gender split, uh, normal-looking people, a little bit funkier <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, biker-type-looking people, but all there who were enthusiastically supporting... Mm somebody like Nigel Farage, a real sort of archetypal Tory libertarian sort of figure. Uh, so, yeah, though there, there does seem to be a, a, a way in which there's a disconnect between the fervour and the support of these ideas and, and, and the major parties, particularly the Liberal Party. Mm. I think it's really good for our political culture to have such a conference. I mean, the left have, you know, endless amounts of con conferences, whether it be... Uh, writers' festivals or festival of dangerous mm. ideas, most of which get taxpayer funding. Mm. Um, it's really good for the right to have uh, uh, conservatives um, to have uh, a conference to go to where they can express their policy ideas. Uh, now, I wasn't at CPAC on the weekend, but I have been to CPAC in the US last year, and it is not some you know extreme. Um, hate conference as the Labor Party would describe it. It's a legitimate pl place where you go to see potential future presidential candidates uh, give their big policy speeches. Mm. Um, you, you really get insight into what the future of the Republican Party will be like 
by going to a CPAC conference. And if we can bring that sort of culture over here where we can go and see the future of the conservative and libertarian and classical liberal movement in Australia, but also see some of the standout international figures of the centre-right, then um, I hope there's many, many more yeah. CPAC conferences to come. And one, one of the things about it, so uh, uh, our wonderful leader of uh, man National Manager of Generation Liberty, Renee Gorman, was there. Uh, she, in fact, had, had been to uh, Freedom Fest, uh, another American conference, and flew back into Australia and, and went straight to uh, a speaking gig at CPAC Australia. She made the point also that um, when we get this going, we're actually pretty good at it. Uh, mm. A lot of us have been to um, uh, the... Uh, Freedman Society conference that the Australian Taxpayers Association started seven or eight years ago with very few people and it's now now uh, got hundreds of people going to it. Wonderful panel discussions and I, I understand that CPAC Australia also had some wonderful panel discussions. This is um, if you had have only read the you know the Sydney Morning Herald, you might think it was just you know a bunch of mad righties sitting up there. Uh, ranting away, and quite apart from the fact that um, they're not mad and uh, they're not ranting, but hey, hey, nothing wrong with mad writers <laughs> ranting away. <laughs> yeah. Some of us do that for a living. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fan fancy that, no that that crazy Nigel Farage <laughs> saying we should be a sovereign country. Mm. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, what a radical yeah. idea that is. But uh, in any event, um, so uh, the these are places where ideas are genuinely discussed. No one goes there thinking everyone's going to think exactly like me. Mm, mm. Um, so and, and I think that's the point, and I think Gideon sort of hit on that, is that, you know, a conventional political party, there is not a lot of that. You know, you're going along to meetings where you're doing a lot of administrative mm. and procedural... Accepting the correspondence. ...and voting on last <laughs> yeah. month's minutes and all that sort of stuff. Whereas you go to something like this and it's lively and interesting, and you've got the choice, you know, nobody's forced to sit through any session. They're there because they're really interested in what's happening and, and might get some stimulating new ideas or see... As Evan said, somebody interesting from overseas that they've read read writings of or seen online, but actually to see in person, you know, it's really interesting. One and of really the things that have, has mm. come out of the CPAC conference is that um, it's not just made sort of national media in Australia, but it's also got a lot of attention in Republican and mainstream media circles in the US. Really, which means that um, they what they believe is is that next year they'll be able to attract a lot bigger speakers, like say a Ted Cruz or a Marco Rubio or, yeah, yeah. or someone along mm. those lines. Mm. Yeah, and I think uh, it's also important to note, um, God, I, I wish I could stop talking about Keneally, but she, re <laughs> she really did highlight so many issues. Mm. You know, anything I disagree with is hate speech, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But one of, the, one of the other assumptions is you've got speakers from America, you're using a model from America, therefore all the actual substance of the ideas must be American. So, you know, 300 Australians are going to gather in, gather in Sydney and, and talk about how they want all want access to AK-47s. But <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's such rubbish because it's a, it's a model of coming together, um, a model of building a movement. The substance of the ideas is still up to us. And it's mm. so hypocritical of the left to say we're, the, the, the right is importing their business model from America. The left have been you know, the mm. Labor Party in particular have been copying the tactics of the Democratic Party for years. Mm. In fact, every election I can remember, uh, you know, for a time about, a, you know, for over the course of a decade, the left or the Labor Party always briefed out that they were they were flying in these experts from the Obama campaign because mm. they, they set the gold standard of, uh, of, of, 
uh, data tracking, all sorts of other things. And yet, uh, you know, the, the, as you said, to use the same business model here is going to be lead to the automatic importation of all the things uh, that are culturally alien to Australia, including, uh, admittedly, gun rights. And, and, and this is the same senator who only a month ago was carrying on about press freedoms, uh, <laughs> which is a subset of freedom of speech. And, uh, you know, downstream from that, I think it's ridiculous that she was saying that, you know, it's going to be a talk fest of hate and we shouldn't be allowing all these people into Australia um, to talk about it. So she wants freedom of speech for some people, uh, like journalists, but not for anyone else. And on reflection after this, all this carry-on, I think a lot of people within the government would be regretting the decision to earlier on ban Milo Yiannopoulos. Yes, yes. In, in retrospect, mm. it, it, it does seem like an overreaction. And um, uh, also, uh, while it's energised attendees and those who are going to go to future such events, I didn't actually detect any great groundswell behind Christina Keneally. No. Like, this is no. A, and that is one of the differences. I saw one Wait, op-ed in The Guardian. That was it. So you try and import a model of woke activism from America, which is what she was doing, but there was no mass movement there. That is the most fascinating thing about all of this. This was, you know, she was obviously trying to light a fire, and she she doubled down. She kept uh, digging the same hole deeper for the course of two weeks. She was tweeting and talk, she was ranting about it in in the Senate when we we're up in Canberra. Twitter wars with Trump Jr. Twitter wars with Trump Jr. Correct. Nobody was buying what she was selling, other than a few lunatics from Antifa. I didn't even know we had a local chapter of Antifa, but there you go. We uh, imported that from overseas. Uh, we imported yeah. that from yeah, overseas right. too. She, no, this did we, not we got Starbucks and Antifa out of Seattle. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, America. No, and uh, I, I think the other thing it, it actually highlights is that. You know, what we say a lot of, so it's become a bit of a cliche in our circles, but conservatism and, and right-wing thought is the new counterculture mm. and it's it's very subversive to, um, to subscribe to ideas that were traditionally or previously the establishment ideas. Uh, and you, when you have some, you know, somebody frowning and telling you not to go to this thing because it's, uh, you know, going to be mm. a breeding ground for hate speech and you're a terrible person if you go, the temptation is a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have gone decide to rock up as, a, as yeah. an act of defiance. Well, at the very least, more people became aware of it. I yes, mean, at the very true. least. And that, mm. that sort of broadens the pool of people who might have some interest in ideas. Suddenly, they, you know, this really gets on their radar. Yeah. 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 Including, uh, as, as Richard said, some wonderful young people and we saw lots of young people at Friedman and, um, in fact, the uh, Generation Liberty uh, stubby holders made, uh, had a very good CPAC conference, uh, came back with some, uh, some great uh, Renee and Theodora and Barclay and others had some great selfies with um, uh, Nigel Farage and and uh, and Meadows and yeah no it was it was an absolutely brilliant way for young people to get involved. Um, speaking of um, uh, the left, uh, the climate alarmism wing of the left has also been uh, very busy. Well, they're always busy, but it does seem like a, a big week for uh, for alarmism and some of the more extreme ideas that are being peddled. As, as we teeter on the edge of the roaring 20s, you know, as we close out this wretched decade that was the 2010s, <laughs> you know, this climate stuff, I mean, it's, it's reaching fever pitch. I always say climate change is, is like corduroy. It goes in and out of fashion uh, in politics all the time. So right now, climate is in. Uh, the Extinction Rebellion people, uh, you know, the, the wild anarchists who just want any excuse to smash things and riot have now expanded into Perth, uh, having 
glued themselves to the road of Brisbane on several occasions and thoroughly uh, ticked off motorists there. So, and I love this in a way because you know people from Western Australia and Queensland are so smug, saying, "Oh, you Victorians, you're so left wing." Well, they've got some you know plenty of ratbags of their own. So, we saw Clark Extinction Rebellion expand into Perth. The IPCC, that august body uh, that's never wrong and whose predictions have always been proven right, have said that the governments <laughs> need to push people off meat because meat. Uh, is uh, causing emission, uh, making the climate change situation worse, but worse through methane emissions from cows and so on. Uh, German and UK Greens MPs have cottoned on to the idea, so they will uh, unfortunately be debating a meat tax over there. And finally, the unaccountable rise of pipsqueak's climate messiah Greta Thunberg continues. She continues to have the world enthralled for reasons I cannot understand, including, I might add, uh, yesterday I saw on the cover of British GQ is a photo of Greta Thunberg. This is GQ, Gentleman's Quarterly, you know, a magazine you read to, to work out what colour chinos are in fashion and, uh, you know, for dating advice. A, a men's lifestyle magazine is for some reason pushing climate alarmism. Now, GQ checked out several years ago. I bought a, an issue not so long ago and, you know, I got as far as the editorial where they were um, banging on about toxic masculinity and I said, that's it, I'm out. But... To go then, even this is this is next level. So th that, that, that's worse than Meghan Markle doing Vogue. I mean, this is uh, they've taken over GQ. Shocking. Well. So yeah. so this is this is where we're at in uh, late 2019. And uh, I mean, Greta, Greta Thunberg. We have talked about her on the on the podcast before, um, and it's not really a, about her, although she is incredibly annoying. <laughs> um, but but that uh, this uh, when somebody comes along with an apocalyptic tone um the apparent uh innocence of youth and there's a sort of a climate establishment that is willing to abase itself and uh, so she has extinction rebellion behind her and the eu and the ipcc in front of her if you like mm. as, as she um goes to lecture them and um and of course we love we love brendan o'neill of, of, of spiked and he was on instagram Last night, he, he clipped um, her speaking, and uh, I thought what she was saying in print was bad enough. But actually, having to listen to her speak is is incredibly tortuous. And uh, O'Neill's like, "I'm sorry, but I am sick of being lectured to by the Greta Thunberg cult with its fearful, miserableist, anti-human propaganda. It's not Greta's fault. She is just the patsy of an elite that has turned against the ideals of economic growth and progress, and now prefers to promote a cult of restraint and low horizons." Nailed oh. it. Mm. Yeah. Nailed it. That's, great. That's in, I, I think it's mm. I think it's incredibly creepy, and I don't blame Greta. I don't. Uh, I actually feel really, really sorry for her because she's being used, um, and it's just really just incredibly creepy uh, to use a young girl in such a way as to promote uh, your your message. And they do the same thing with the climate strikes. Is she mm. being and used? I think. Absolutely. Does she have no agency at all? I think absolutely she's being. I think used. She, she's a she's minor, you know, and 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 she's sixteen and everything else. But I think she's. Uh, and uh, you know, I think she has agency. But she she's been convinced that the world is going to end sure. in mm. you know within a decade if nothing is done. Uh, she's to the point of tears, uh, begging everyone to act on on climate change. She's clearly being used, and and that um, same culture of the left in using children mm. um, to you know spread your message and using children to go out and strike. I think is incredibly weird and creepy. We have seen mm. it in Australia, the um, uh, student strike for climate, where uh, teachers g'd up a few of their, uh, you know, 
classroom students encourage them to skip school and go out and protest and oh, the media fawned over I don't know it. that it came from the teachers. Some, uh, well, in some schools, it probably, some, some places yeah. it did and some places well, it probably didn't. But it yeah. would have had to in some in some. Well, they cases. certainly waved it through. They were, they were happy for them to do that. I mean, if yeah. they had have said, I'm taking Friday off to go and campaign for uh, uh, Scott Morrison, then uh, <laughs> the <laughs> teachers may not have endorsed, endorsed mm. the absence quite I'd as well. I'd love readily. to meet a teacher would endorse that, but mm. uh, yeah, no. But, but it's... Um, Yes, I mean, it's an incredible, and I think the, the Brendan O'Neill quote sort of picked up on this too. It's almost like also trying to outdo yourself in um, almost wowserism or self, you know, immolation. Um, you know, we've seen uh, now proposals floating around that Parliament House in Victoria should have a vegan Monday or something. We have local councils. Bernie Finn would go into meltdown. Yeah, we have debates about whether councils should have fireworks on, you know, be sponsoring fireworks on New Year's Eve, and you get all these different of people trying to come up with ideas, um, usually hopelessly you know, hip- hypocritical in most cases because just on one hand they'll be doing something like that, on the other hand they'll be you know, flying off to a conference somewhere to discuss other ways to do something like this. I mean, that's where it sort of becomes you know, completely inconsistent and ridiculous that you know, they pick certain things to try and crack down on and then not others. Yeah, mm. So, the, and you mentioned the councils and, and this is part of the wave of it that um, a number of councils, uh, including Melbourne and Hobart are two that I know of, are declaring climate emergencies. And it's Sydney, com- I think Clover Moore's... Uh, yeah, Sydney and, as well. Sydney, yeah. of course. Mm. Yes. The first. So mm. this, is the, um, this is the current meme. And um, uh, to Evan's point, it's this... Uh, because you, you, know, you can stand up and say, oh, I'm worried about climate change, but it's actually this, this millennial apocalyptic tone of the whole thing that's being promoted to and by a Greta Thunberg and in our schools how many anecdotal reports are we getting back um, from our children or our friends children or, or people we know that kids are coming home from school saying oh we've just been told the world's got the planet's got 12 12 years yeah it's funny mm. about this uh, good friend of the show uh, an IPA member Sam Kennard uh, was uh, tweeted out the other week uh, a screenshot from his daughter saying oh my god uh uh, Dad, they told me, uh, you know, I think this was a, a year seven class. They told me um, half the class weren't going to be alive in 2050 because of climate change. And it went absolutely viral around the world, <laughs> the, uh, the tweet. But this is, this is what students are being told. And on, on the point about the councils, they're all declaring climate emergencies. Is there any of them, any of them sending in martial law to fix climate change? Like the, the language of it yeah. is so sensational. <laughs> it really sends the wrong message. Mm. And, and, and Melbourne uh, City Council uh, had some comments in the Herald Sun today about it they've um they're now requiring everyone that does business with the council including events companies to have their own climate plan so if you you're a community group or a small business and want to have a stall in an event with melbourne city council you literally have to have a climate plan you can't use plastics you have to go to paper straws you have to go through all the hoops and Mm. and whistles of this nonsense Mm. And, and what for like australia only contributes 1.3% 1.3% yeah. to and, global and, carbon know, emissions. And, and, so and, Melbourne's would be, you know, 0. 0.0007. And have, and have your computer on for longer while you're filling out all the papers. <laughs> 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 you know, there's all, it's what it always gets me with all this hypocrisy. I look, you know, it's recycling, right? Well, you have to put, the, you know, clean, have put clean products in the recycling so you don't contaminate it. So you have to use more water to clean the product to put it in the recycling. So um, a lot of these things just are completely illogical. But mm. it's not the matter of even practical measures being illogical and unhelpful, the climate emergency 
thing is purely symbolic. They are not calling for any particular mm. action. I mean, that, there's obviously action backing it up. But the Greens are huffing and puffing, saying the National Parliament must declare an emer- a climate emergency. Mm. As Evan said, what does that even mean? Mm. Does it mean that the Parliament will have special climate emergency powers? Does that mean we're all living under climate martial law? Uh, it is pure symbolism, pure deference to 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 the you know, for lack of a better word, this cult. No, mm. but I think I actually think that is the. Um that is the real intent. Um, it is. Uh, I'm not saying martial law per se, but it is the notion that it uh, an emergency calls for emergency powers. So emergency powers, which would override private property rights, mm. uh, you could the government could actually step in, completely reconstruct their energy system, close down all the coal-fired power stations, close down all the gas-fired power stations, and and just by fiat create this fantasy world. Mm. Um, that that's being talked about by the Greta Thunbergs of the world, uh, and some and of course in many parts of the world the politicians have fallen for this trap by saying oh yes this is possible even something like the UK uh, has committed to net zero emissions by 2050 and and um, uh, even Boris has said oh yes we can absolutely do this 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 is uh, nonsense. Um, but it is that notion that an emergency requires emergency power. So as always with these um, uh, left-wing cults, it's a grab for state power. Mm. It, it's a grab for completely reconstructing society. What would they do without climate change? Mm. What would they hang their head on, really? Diversity. Mm. Well, we'd be back to socialism. Mm. Well, yeah, but they, they lost that argument. Yeah, that's, that is the thing. They lost the, uh, the, you know, clearly capitalism has made taken billions now of people out of poverty in the last, you know, 40 years. So they've sort of lost that argument. So they have to have climate change as the reason for restructuring the economy on socialist lines. Yeah, well, good luck with that, guys. (laughs) Um, Back in Australia, we do have um, uh, a very significant High Court case, uh, uh, Comcare v Banerjee, which was decided recently, which speaks to the implied freedom of political communication, particularly as it relates to public servants, Evan, can you tell us about that? This this was a this was a really interesting case. Um, you had a case of M- Michaela Banerjee who was um, caught out for having an anonymous Twitter account, and she was um, tweeting. She worked for the Department of uh, Immigration and Border Protection, and she was tweeting out on a daily basis um, about the Department of Immigration and Border Protection that she didn't agree with the policies of Nauru and Manus. Uh, that uh, she named particular colleagues in the department um, that were uh, going against what she thought was the right thing to do. Um, she was using her privilege uh, as a uh, official in the department in order to um, put out information about that department in, that disagreed in, in that way. Um, so the ruling came out against her um, and a lot of the left went, nuts over it said well where's the free speech warriors and whatnot uh but in this case i think it was a very narrow straight up and down case there was no broad implication to take from the ruling uh, as a test case or anything else like that and and the judgment made particular mention of that um i just don't think there is a case for public servant free speech uh where you attack your own employer Mm. and um and do so and people make the comparison to Falau for mm-hmm. example um, but the uh, Department of Immigration 
uh, has a particular role in immigration policy. And it's about confidence in whether you can do your job properly. While um, the ARU, for example, doesn't have a theological purpose. So you could take from that that Israel Folau was expressing his freedom of speech. Yeah, and I, and I, when this story broke, I had you know, the, my usual band of lunatics on Twitter saying, oh, is the IPA going to come out and defend this lady? You know, what about free speech? What are you going to have to say about free speech? As it happened, Andrew Bushnell wrote a very measured, thoughtful piece four hours after the judgment, which I was able to lob at them. So, you know, invoked some of that bushy magic. But, you know, there's a very important distinction to be drawn. And even on Falau, even on Falau, uh, what most of us have said is that as a matter of contract law, uh, maybe, you know, that it's still for the courts to decide, but... Maybe Rugby Australia did have the legal right as a private organisation to do what they did. We can, however, criticise it as a matter of culture. We can criticise it as a matter of just because they could have done what they did doesn't mean that they should have. In this instance, as you said, it is very different from the Folau case. The Rugby Australia case is uh, was a woke private body uh, that Israel Folau fell foul of and was you know, grossly over-punished for that. As you said, this is... I, I, this woman, uh, her activities directly uh, affected her ability to do her job properly yeah. and it is reasonable for an employer in such such circumstances to uh, say no more social media, no more tweeting. I was a, a staffer for many years and I didn't do any social media. Uh, that wasn't a hard requirement. But, you know, when you take jobs in the public service, you do have to relinquish, in some cases, some of your right to be a, a public entity. Yeah. And, it, I mean, employment, you know, there's all sorts of degrees of free speech. Like, I would think a, a cafe would be entitled to sack an employee who spent their time away from the cafe standing out the front with a sign saying, don't eat here, the mm. food's terrible. Um, <laughs> you know, like, um, I would think that would be grounds for, for a cafe to take action against somebody, whereas we wouldn't expect, you know, a cafe to be able to dismiss somebody if they were out campaigning for a political party mm. in, in a normal course of election. So there are certain things that employers, are able to do with their employees if they directly affect the employment. And that, clearly, in this case, it did. So I think, you know, it's quite, as we've said, quite a narrow thing because it relates to the employer, whereas the Falau thing, and I completely agree with what Gideon said, it might be contractual... The courts will find whether they did, in fact, have the legal right to terminate his contract, but um, it's clearly what he was... You know, his issue had nothing directly to do with playing rugby. Mm. Yeah, the the other thing I noticed in terms of the reaction, uh, as you say, Gideon, there was the oh, you know, this just proves the hypocrisy of the right because they won't they won't get behind um, uh, Ms. Banerjee. But um, the, uh, but the other part of the left reaction, if you Google it, all over the web there are these oh, this proves that we need a big a bill of rights. Mm. So there, uh, the High Court some years ago came up with this notion of the implied freedom of political communication uh, and then essentially has been limiting it ever since. And, and certainly in this case, um, it was a consideration but not enough to uh, reverse the decision to terminate um, Ms Banerjee's employment. And But this, this idea that it's, it's almost like it's the equivalent of speed dial. What's the equivalent of speed dial for the web? No matter what a court decides or no matter what the issue, there's this sort of chorus of, this just proves we need a Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. um, and even though th these are the same people who, when they speak of free speech, they say, oh, yes, it, it is. we must have free speech, 
but of course not hate speech. Mm. <laughs> so we should have a Bill of Rights and then we will immediately circumscribe so that, mm. those rights. Yeah, okay. th- th- what they want to do is rely on left-wing uh, lawyers and judges to decide what, what is and isn't free speech. I think the High Court is is quite inconsistent on free speech when it comes to freedom of political communication. Mm. Uh, it's not okay, apparently, if you want to uh, exercise your right to protest. Uh, uh, sorry, it is okay if you want to exercise your right to protest outside of a forest being logged, mm. but it's not okay if you want to exercise your right to protest outside of an abortion clinic. Um, really? I think that's where the issue is and because mm. they're, they're taking a bob each way on political communication. Is, is that because of exclusion zones and, and things like that? So they've upheld the validity of exclusion zones. And yes, and what's the deal with the forestry? Have they, have they ruled Well, that, that was the, 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 Bob, the Bob Brown case uh, where uh, um, uh, they mm. allowed protests to take place outside of uh, for- forest being logged mm. um, but then on the very uh, question of outside of an abortion clinic apparently that's that's not okay I think with the the, the, the Banerjee case um, I would be very concerned if it was taken more broadly uh, because there's there's almost two million public servants in Australia working for both federal and state which is a problem in itself and um, mm. it is a problem in itself but those people should be able to uh, criticise the government of the day in portfolio areas that's not within their remit. Mm. Uh, they should be able to join a political party. They should be able to donate to a political party or mm. be politically active. Um, so if this case was much more broad, uh, I would certainly be more worried than what I am now. Mm. Yeah, we've yeah. all, we've all uh, in different guises, worked uh, in political roles along uh, working daily with public servants um, who do provide the uh, impartial and expert advice that you need, and then they head off to the branch meeting of the ALP or the, mm, or yeah. the Greens, and or, yeah. or, or God, God forbid, the Liberal Party. In <laughs> very rare, very <laughs> rare cases, and um, there are a few. Yeah. Uh, but that is that is they remain citizens, of course, and and there are, there are yeah. channels mm. for that, and and uh, and a, and a, and a, and a a sensible public servant can usually manage that balance quite well. You know, yeah. that I've, most of the public servants I've encountered who, in that situation, have managed to maintain that situation quite well. Whereas, obviously, it's very different if you're criticising your, the particular area that you're working in, and particularly criticising your colleagues as well. Like that's you know, I think another, another in interesting part of this case is how many other public servants are now out there with uh, anonymous Twitter accounts. Oh yeah, well, uh, what is there such a thing as an anonymous Twitter account but anymore? This woman I, I, I think you're ris- risking, uh, well, clearly risking your career if you mm. go down. But that this road. woman, but this woman was very silly, to put it mildly. Um, she, I have read, and you know, can't verify this, but I've read that she had a printout of the avatar that she used for her fake Twitter account at her desk in the department. I mean, she was asking for it. Just wanting to be caught. I'm just thinking if Dr. Berg were here, he'd be referring to the metadata laws and the or, or, the near <laughs> certainty that one way or another, um, uh, your anonymous Twitter account, which you've accessed mm. at work most likely, yes. would, would actually be pulled up. Correct. Um, we have come to that part of the show where we talk about books and culture, what we've been reading, writing or listening to. A uh, couple of books on the Liberal Party this week. Um, Evan, you've got one. Yeah, so I've been uh, just finished Nikki Savas' Plots and Prayers, um, which is quite a good insight into events that were happening uh, during uh, the, the the Turnbull uh, government years, the three years of Turnbull, and uh, and little uh, tidbits that we might have missed. Um, gives sort of a, a broad behind the scenes look 
into events that were happening that you might not have seen if you're watching Sky News like most of us. Um, like interesting the Sky t- News tells the truth. Yeah. <laughs> um, interesting tales like uh, my old boss, Mitch Firefield, and how he wrestled with uh, what to do and, uh, and who to support. Um, and tales like how moderates like Christopher Pine and Maurice Payne uh, ditched Julie Bishop in a heap and uh, mobilised behind Scott Morrison. Um, I would note, however, in reading it, and I read Road to Ruin, uh, which is the one about how, supposedly, the byline, how Tony Abbott and Peter Credlin destroyed their own government. Um, I would note that there wasn't the same... um, uh, passion and bitterness hmm. uh, in this book uh, towards Malcolm Turnbull as there was towards Tony Funny Abbott. About that. The people uh, that she uh, fondly looks upon in Road to Ruin uh, are on the side of the angels, uh, supposedly, but the people that plotted against uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull were plotters and, and monkey potters and, and, and really, really bad people and conspiring and and undermining like Malcolm Turnbull wasn't at all undermining throughout his uh, uh, time as communications minister. So I would note the, the language and reading both and looking at the language, it was uh, easy to see which side of the, uh, the Abbott-Turnbull wars that she was on. Yeah, no, I mean, this is the thing. I can't read Nikki Saver anymore. Uh, she is a shameless an unabashed cheerleader for Turnbull and, uh, you know, and this, but this, she... she but but reflects, if, that's what, if that's what you want, this is the book for sure, you. Sure, but, but the thing is she's, she's not Robinson Crusoe. Obviously she is symbolic of the vast, vast majority of the press gallery that hung Tony Abbott out, for dry, out to dry for basically speaking up as, an, uh, as a government backbencher, as is his right, and criticising the policy of the government that he was excluded from uh, because of Malcolm's decision not to bring him back into Cabinet. Uh, and for that, he was say, a wrecker and a sniper and an underminer. Yet Malcolm Turnbull, who was, uh, undermi- who, who was uh, alleged or believed to have been uh, working against Tony Abbott for years, and I was there, I worked in the Abbott government, and Cabinet was leaking like a sieve. Uh, that, that's sort of been given a free pass because, as you said, Malcolm Turnbull was on the side of the angels because he's Malcolm Turnbull. He wears a leather jacket and he's cool and he believes in climate change and so on. It is a, an enormous gaping double standard. I think mm. it's wonderful to have it on the record because, I, I just, as, as I've said before on this podcast, I just think in years to come, people will look back at this supposed ideological schism uh, represented by Abbott on the one side and Turnbull on the other, and they'll say there was no ideological schism. Mm. This is just pure personality politics. And, and as you say, Evan, um, it, within the space of five years, plotting is bad. Oh, no, plotting is good. You know, it's, what, what's for a good purpose? Oh, the, men, the, the means don't justify the ends, well, except when it's my side. Mm. This, this is actually just politics at it at its most basic and um, there is no lasting legacy I think um, uh, certainly not from Turnbull and I think even even to an extent Abbott and um, and just having a book in your oeuvre called The Road to Ruin I want how does that look now that after Morrison's victory yeah well this is supposed yeah, the original exactly. title it was supposed to be Highway to Hell yeah. and it got changed <laughs> from election no the, the Road to yeah. Ruin Highway to Hell it would have been a cute sort of follow-up and a sequel yeah. um, but Morrison won the election. The whole yeah. thesis was blown apart on election night. Mm. 
And I mean, I think that's probably the book's value is it does provide some of those, gives some people a chance to put on the record, you know, their view of why they did what they did. So, yeah. I mean, it will be a useful reference point for that uh, reason, I think. Can I recommend a much fairer book, which is David Spears on Mutiny, much shorter, but uh, David Spears gives a much more balanced account of uh, what went on during those. The Last Days yeah. of Rome, of the Turnbull Experiment Mark II. Mm. Well, there you go. But that's not the book you're actually going, uh, planning no. to talk about. <laughs> no, another Liberal Party-related book. So John Ruddick, uh, a mate of mine and uh, sort of high-profile commentator, uh, has sent me a free copy of Make the Liberal Party Great Again, uh, which I did thoroughly enjoy. Uh, now, the book basically is about... Uh, broadly democratisation of the Liberal Party, moving away from closed branch structures and towards open primaries and towards direct leadership elections as opposed to having the leader elected by the party room. Now, I thought I had... Uh, look, firstly, I've, I've you know, been a Liberal Party member, uh, as I said, for most of my life, or over half my life. But I've taken a step back from you know active involvement over the last little while, so the last thing I wanted to read was about Liberal Party stuff, but I did thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, I thought I'd heard all the arguments in favour of party democratisation, but John Ruddick did come up with a few new ones and a few new angles, which are very interesting. But also John is a, a very good writer and he has a very, very good grasp of... You know, there were a lot of great historical factoids in there and a lot of great uh, analogous examples. For example, uh, he... Trace back the origins of the U.S. Democrat, uh, the U.S. primary system, uh, which is quite interesting reading. But also talking about direct leadership elections in places like, say, the U.K. and in Canada. And I have to say, uh, you know, I was always a bit ambivalent about direct party democracy and direct leadership elections. But John has won me over. And if I needed any more convincing, look at the process we had in the U.K., where Boris Johnson was emphatically elected by the membership of the Conservative Party to be the Prime Minister of the UK or leader and Prime Minister-designate and subsequently Prime Minister. I think that has given him much more momentum going in. I think it's given him a stronger mandate. And I do think the the process of having open debates, open contests between two Tories about what their principles are and what they stand for makes makes the Tories a, more, a stronger party. So, John, if you're listening, you want me over, uh, great read and uh, always happy to accept well, a free uh, book from you. Yeah, yeah, level two, 410 Collins Street. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, anyway in free books. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Really, uh, that, that's a, I think one of the geniuses of parliamentary democracy is the ability to... Uh, have a leader that's fit for the times, and uh, as, as Churchill said, you know, the, the, you know, they must not be wantonly, wantonly disturbed. Um, but if they're no good, they must be poleaxed. And and there's a sort of a clear mechanism for that in a in a party system. This this business of months long campaigns is 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 painful. And and of course, you've read the book on Corbyn as well, who was elected under just the same system. Yeah. And uh, and I know several cases, a few of my friends in the UK did it, of uh, Tories joining the Labor Party to yeah. vote for Jeremy Corbyn that's the risk. as a laugh. Yeah, mm. that's that, that's the risk. And in Australia, you need to do it in such a way that, yeah, you wouldn't have um, lunatics from the left bombing in to vote for. And or vice versa. Having a mm. high enough membership fee, for example, is one. Uh, oh, no, we can interfere with the other side. But, they, you know, <laughs> um, uh, the concern is that, yeah, people would uh, bomb in to elect, uh, you know, a, a useless leader who... Um, Nobody would take seriously. The, the, the Jeremy Corbyn issue, I guess, is to do with the fact that the Labor laws were too lax 
uh, Labor leadership rules. People could join for, I think, £3 or something. It got infiltrated by very well-organised, extremely left-wing unions and rabble-rousers and all sorts mm. of other ratbags. So that's where the wheels fell off that. Um, but, yeah, look, as I said, I used to see it your way, Scott, but when you look mm. at when you look at the mess the Liberal Party has frankly found itself in for the last little while, when you look back at the 54 people who suffered such political amnesia that in 2015 they gave the keys to the Ferrari back to the kid who crashed it just six years earlier, I don't know, I think there might be something in it. Well, the, who knows? Okay, that's uh, John Ruddick's book, uh, which is available in all good bookstores. Uh, I have been watching um, not Netflix this time. It's actually an HBO series which I found on Foxtel. Uh, James Bolt put me onto it. Our wonderful uh, young IPA podcast uh, co-host. Um, it's called Barry, and it stars Bill Hader, the the comedian. Um, uh, I didn't know much about him. He was on Saturday Night Live. I used to watch that, but that was last century. Apparently, it's still going. Um, and he turns out to be very good, uh, very good at impressions. Um, I was reading a little about Bill Hader. He apparently worked backstage in Hollywood for a long time before he actually took up the mic as a comedian and got, you know, in a classic Hollywood uh, uh, moment, uh, got discovered and invited to audition for Saturday Night Live and bingo, there he is and his career's off and racing. And his show is called Barry and it's about a character um, who's actually a hitman. Ex, ex-army, um, it's got nothing, you know, his career choice then is just to assassinate people for money. But when he goes to Hollywood to um, uh, to work, <laughs> to do a job, he suddenly falls in with a, um, a troop of uh, 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 actors uh, being trained by Henry Winkler, of all people. <laughs> older people remember him as the Fonz. And so it's this sort of dark comedy where... He just—he's been—he doesn't want to be a hitman anymore. He didn't know what he wanted to do. He's, but he thinks it's acting, mm. and he's terrible, by the way. Uh, and it takes the Mickey out of all of these people who are desperately trying to become actors and and be taught how to act by Henry Winkler. And it's um, so there's lots of sort of gags about that process. And it's um, uh, it's in it went gone into its second season. I watched the first season, and as a dark comedy, it certainly is. Uh, impressive. He won an Emmy for it. Um, he was essentially sort of writer, director, producer, lead actor. Um, also has some great light relief from a bloke called um, Anthony uh, Cardigan, I think it is. Uh, uh, no, that's that's must be my uh, uh, my computer resetting my spelling. But uh, <laughs> Cardigan uh, as uh, a Chechen gangster, <laughs> uh, but who's um, uh, very much into touchy feely and, and <laughs> quotes management books and uh, and a ripper character, but the the thing I so I found it tremendously entertaining. Thank you, James Bolt, but also profoundly nihilistic. I sort of wonder about this culture that we've got to, where the lead character is a hitman mm. and has a little habit of resolving difficulty in his life by by shooting people, and he always regrets it. He doesn't feel good about it. He's conflicted. Um, but that doesn't really do it for me. I just think there's a, you know, well, it's the end of Western civilization. I guess Dostoevsky wrote about this for a while ago. There's sort of, there's no consequences for, for shooting people. If, um, if you just sort of annoyed, you know, that life is so unfair that the only way out of your problem is to shoot someone. Uh, I, I think that's actually a bit of a reflection on where our culture is. Talented as Bill 
Bill Hader is and interesting as Barry is as a show, uh, I just think it was really lacking a, a moral core. Maybe season two will bring it back. Um, but it is, it is certainly some, something to look at if you're into that kind of thing. Mm. I think it's it's an interesting observation because I think that is in the very least in vogue uh, and the advent of streaming services starting with Netflix and building original content and so on has given us some outstanding drama, really high production values, very artistically driven. Um, but the you're right in the sense that people... The, the the main characters in a lot of these programs, people are, are drawn to characters that are that are, are broken, that are imperfect. Mm. Very different from, uh, you know, back in the '60s, for example, Batman was a conventional superhero uh, in 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 the in the traditional sense. Nowadays, the Batman films it, it, it's it's a lot darker, it's a lot more macabre, it's a lot more of a complex character. So it's just but, a reflection of where it's going. But here's the difference though. Um, so uh, Bella Debrera, actually speaking of Western civilization, we, we went and saw a, um, a classics lecturer from uh, from Cambridge who was talking about the, uh, the rules of theatre in ancient Greece, um, which Aristotle captured in his poetics. And one of the th- one of the core notions is the fatal flaw, mm. um, which is in the in the character. And she was talking about Oedipus, the king, um, whose sort of uh, uh, cleverness and arrogance was what brought him un- undone. But uh, the fatal flaw is inside the person. It, it, it's it's a question of of character, and 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 actually, comics always picked that up. They always had um, uh, the notion of nemesis. You know, mm. which is uh, very Greek as well, but in these things, it's not the flaw in themselves. This guy, it's not his fatal flaw that he liked shooting people or couldn't resolve difficulties only by shooting people. It was just that he'd made a bad career choice. Mm. He, it's Haven't like we all? it's like a show about you're just trying to change careers. <laughs> you know, I'm a barista who wants to be an electrician or something. <laughs> um, and every time I try to become an electrician, they stop me. Isn't this yeah. terrible? You know, that's not tragedy. Mm. That's that's just, dude, you made a bad career choice. Yeah. Except the consequences. So That's a very millennial tragedy, I think. Yeah, mm. so we need a bit more Aristotle back in Hollywood, I think. <laughs> Otherwise, our civilization is doomed. Right. Yeah, on that cheery note, Richard, cheer us up. Cheer us up. Well, I'll take you back. If current times are a bit depressing, I'll take you back about 120 years to when um, Patrick McMahon Glynn was an Australian uh, politician. And there's a wonderful new book about him produced by um, Anne Henderson. Um, what's I particularly like this book because I think it fills a bit of a void. Um, as Alfred Deakin famously said in the first decade of Federation, there were three elevens in the field, the, the Labor Party, the Protectionists and the Free Traders. And uh, our history books have what always had way more written about the early Labor Party, quite a lot written about the Protectionists, particularly because Deakin himself was such an intriguing character. People have loved writing about Deakin. But there's been comparatively little written about the Free Trade Party, which at at the time of Federation, was the largest of the the three parties. And Patrick McMahon Glynn, by having a book about him, I think fills a little bit of that gap because he was a free trade um, politician. Um, An interesting one because he was a Catholic, which there were very few... The the Free Trade Party tended to be more a um, Protestant-dominated party, so it was interesting that he was a free trader. He was a free trader from South Australia, which um, was was interesting as well. And it's just an interesting... It's a fascinating book about him. He's a very interesting character. He came out from Ireland as a young man, settled 
um, in South Australia, had quite a few ups and downs. He was a lawyer. Um, he had he couldn't initially make a success. Couldn't work out his position in Adelaide, so he went to the town of Capunda, uh, in in the fit further out into the South Australian hinterland. Um, and then got involved in politics and um, obviously was involved in a lot of the conventions leading up to, to Federation, so there's a lot on that. And, and as I always say when I talk about books of this era, it's amazing how so many of the issues that politicians were dealing with then, um, we still deal with now. For instance, um, one of the things that he had a particular interest in was the use of uh, water from the Murray-Darling Basin. Uh -huh. So there you go. So it was an issue then and still remains on the political agenda now. But he's a very um, interesting character involved in a lot of interesting debates in his time. So I thoroughly recommend the book. It's only a fairly um, slim volume, so um, people will be able to get through it um, fairly fairly quickly. Um, but I thoroughly recommend that people go and um, read that if they want to have a, increase their understanding of the politics of that time and particularly um, what a politician of the Free Trade Party was on about, about free trade. Um, and about on a whole range of other um, related issues as well as the free trade protection issue itself. So this, um, I mean, in, in your lifetime, Richard, uh, this, this kind of scholarship uh, has really been resurrected. I mean, I, uh, when, when uh, if you went back to, say, the, the, the 70s or 80s, the story was basically uh, at the birth of Federation, Alfred Deacon swept the field. All those free traders were just a bunch of loonies. Mm -hmm. uh, all we knew of them was what Deacon had said about them. And yep. since then, there's been like this sustained series of works. Um, uh, mm. uh, yeah, and the resurrection, yeah, by by you know Greg Malouche and various other people who've brought those um, some of those free trade politicians. George, George Reid was yeah. rec uh, resurrected. Um, mm. uh, our own uh, Zachary Gorman. Mm. Um, uh, wrote about Joseph Carruthers and so suddenly you can actually get some personalities which yeah. flesh mm. this story yeah. out. Yeah, and that's, yes, was, was certainly when I first started looking at this this area, you know, all we had was, you know, Deacon's caricature of Reed, you mm. know, and that's, um, and then there was the McGinn biography of Reed in the late 80s and, um, and probably, it's probably crying out for another biography of Reed as well because he's just a fascinating character and um, it's a really interesting period and what's interesting about the period too because of course Labor at that time was partially a free trade party so um, the fact that Labor ended up buying into the protectionist project um, was probably one of the, the sadder developments in Australian political history because if Labor had stayed more on the free trade side of um, the debate um, I think we would have been Australia would have been better off for a huge chunk of the 20th century and, and it's also interesting because uh, Labor was also very Catholic at the time, so to have yep. a Catholic uh, uh, skirt that and uh, join mm. the free traders mm. is very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and to hear about uh, back when South Australia was free trade, mm. uh, great lineage there, right I'm down, more right down back, to Bert Kelly. Labor was a free trade. I didn't know that. No, it's a lot of the early Labor people who supported free trade. Yes. Why? Because well, why wouldn't anybody support free well, trade? Well, that's you correct. Know, yeah. But you, you, when you think of the Labor movement, you think of protection, and they were they were quite uh, going yeah. about white Australia. Yeah, well, they, like were, they were very the strong on that, and they gradually, in a sense, the protectionists were better able to buy them off by giving them some of the other things that they wanted. You know, more um, union friendly measures and so forth, which the the protectionists sort of. Um, 
got closer to them a lot of those other issues. So it sort of forced Labor over onto the protectionist side of that but debate. Just, I just can't resolve the disconnect. So I, I understand that they were gung-ho about white Australia, largely on protectionist grounds. You know, they didn't mm. want Chinese workers yep, coming in and taking jobs. Yep. So why would they then be free trade on, on other because patterns? And it wasn't universal. This was Labor was inherently split on that. Right. So it wasn't the number one issue. Obviously for Labor, the, the, you know, it was workers' right, you know, rights of unions and all um, better, you know, systems for, for workers but some whereas some members of the Labor Party supported you know free trade as a principle and saw the economic benefits of huh. that while others were you know protectionists but gradually the protectionists won that debate within Labor and it, and, and you sort of um, saw it eventually some of the more free trade people you know came out Joseph Cook is probably an example of this as huh. somebody who was a Labor politician who ended up being um, in the Free Trade Party and a, a Liberal Prime Minister. Um, right. Yeah, and again, he wasn't a strong free trader, but he did come across, you know, um, to, to the Free it's Trade interesting. Party. So mm. the Labor Party in its infancy had the proto Hawke and Keating in it, the Free Trade uh, Labourers. There was a, just a, an element of that, and it was quickly snuffed out. And I mean, yeah. across the political yeah. discourse, you know, we know that, you know, from um, really at the time of fusion of the protectionists and free trade parties right through until probably um, there were little shoots of it in the 1960s and getting stronger in the 70s. You know, protectionism ran rampant in Australia across the political divide, you know, in, across all political parties. So it certainly became the flavour of the times and internationally as well. You know, mm. the, the 1920s were probably the, you know, as protection became the mantra across the globe, mm. but um, and it took a long time in the latter part of the 20th century to have free trade ideas start to resurface both in Australia and around the world. Fascinating. And, and thank yeah. God for Paul Let's Keating, who recognised the beneficiaries were not the workers, but just uh, protected and uh, somewhat thick Australian companies. Correct. Yeah. And yeah, their sec second-rate management. So, um, And something was actually done about mm. it. So very good. There you go. It's, it's part of the labour tradition after all. Mm. Thank you, Richard, for that review. You've been listening to Looking Forward, in which the views of the panellists do not necessarily reflect the views of the IPA. To access our research or to join or donate, please go to ipa.org.au. A big thank you to our panellists, Evan Mulholland, Thanks. Gideon Rosner. Thank you, Scott. And Richard Allsop. Thanks, Scott. And, of course, our backstage team for today, Josh Stranger, Saw Muscatel and Cy Robinson. We'll be back with more Looking Forward, including Chris Berg, next week.